30,000 screaming fans are here to see their favorite Speedway motorcycle racer complete a few short laps on a dirt track as fast as he can. Shoulder to shoulder with other fearless riders, he's hell-bent on hitting the corner first at breakneck speed. A throttle game of chicken taking place on supercharged motorbikes with no brakes and one gear. It's game on as usual for world champion Barry Briggs. I knew I couldn't go back. Changes your you just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to just dug even deeper. Luck is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Cogan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to tick it before you kick it. A show is one thing, but when you've got to go out and win, it's a bit different. And you find out about yourself what makes you win or how you're going to be good one night or bad the other. And you find out about your body and what you can do and what you can't be to be at your best, you know. Barry Briggs is a living icon who dominated the world of speedway racing, once the most popular spectator sport in the UK and other parts of Europe, for a quarter century. Competing on a specially designed motorbike with one gear and no brakes, speedway riders race on a dirt oval track, power sliding through the corners and reaching speeds over 80 miles an hour. Briggs is a four-time world champion has won six consecutive British titles and two in New Zealand, where he's in the Sporting Hall of Fame. He was also awarded Most Excellent Order of the British Empire. At 84 years old, Barry still rides a motorbike and only a few years ago participated in what many consider to be the deadliest race in the world, the Isle of Man. Despite all his achievements, Barry Briggs is incredibly humble. I learned this when Briggo, as he's affectionately known, sat down to talk with me about his years in this crazy sport and why he feels like he's the luckiest bugger in the world, not just for having survived all the near-death crashes, but to be doing something he really loves for so long. You don't want to just be thought of as a speedway racer, which you were so successful at, but more you want to be remembered and, and the thing that really interests you the most is more the mindset, right? Well, you've, I spent 30 years doing what I'm supposed to do. Can you come and do this? Can you do this? Can you do it? Yeah, and that was part of my life and I got paid for it. But then I come to the stage, right, I'm old enough now. I want the last part of my life at my rules. To do whatever you want to do. Yeah, if I want to go riding, people will say, you can't go riding because you're 80 something years old in the mountains by yourself. If I die by my own hand, I'm quite happy with that. I want to enjoy my life, what I want to do now. You, you, you were saying too that you know, some people, now you're riding for pleasure, right? But back yeah. in the day, yeah. you had to ride because you had to put food yeah. on the table. Yeah. I mean, it was like, you, if, if you didn't win, you didn't yeah. get paid. Yeah, that's exactly. It was, and it's sometimes as much as seven nights a week. And, you know, it's, it, it's a lot to try to win. I think I've done over 12,000 races. It's a lot of races because you've got to be mentally tuned and you can step up the blokes and I, you get to know who you can trust and who you can't trust and if you're going to pass them, you've got to make sure you get there quickly because he'll do the wrong thing. i got a finger off, haven't I? That yeah. was deliberate. You, you, you were known, Barry, for being the guy who went into the corner, the first corner very, very fast. I've watched a bunch of races on YouTube of you and you, you out of the gate, you wanted to get into that corner before everybody. You yeah. weren't scared of that first corner. 
No, it's it's you, you've got to rely completely on your judgment, and if, if you're any good, you you know how good your judgment is. And it's if I had it again, I'd be just concentrate on being a starter because my boys started, and Tony was really good until he got paralysed, and but he didn't start. You know, we he was a fantastic rider, but if you don't start, you don't get what you should do. And when you say start, where, where... start go from the starting gate to the first corner fast. Yeah. You know, and this is there's a Kiwi boy, Ivan Major. He made a career out of it. He just, knew he knew who the referees were that were starting it, and and if you just move a little bit, you get a little bit of a roll, and it's worth half a length. And you know, it's it's like anything. If you're professionals, you find the best way of doing it. You know. You were known for your aggression, and and uh, I, I was reading where you borrowed someone's motorbike once, and they, and they said. You riding their motorbike in one race was like them riding yeah. the motorbike for five races. Yeah, this is Ivan. You know, Ivan. Ivan used to loan me the bike, but, you know, I was hard on it because that was the way I learned because I wasn't a very good starter, so I had to hustle to get points, you know. Yeah. How, how is somebody hat on a motorbike? How would, he, how would he know that you were so hard on the motorbike? Well, you never shut the throttle. You kind of ride it just about full throttle all the time, you know. Right on the edge. Because speedways all about spin the the when you're going around the corner sideways it's done by spin yeah and once the spin goes out the bike will just go straight but you know the spin is what makes you turn the corners so barry i didn't really know that much about speedways till i mm-hmm. till i started researching what the sport was really yeah. all about mm-hmm. i've certainly seen pictures of it uh in its heyday which was when the 30s and that it was very very popular and there was loads of tracks and that was within the in the wartime and um they always got big crowds you know the 20 30,000 people it was a spectator sport because you you have one race and it's over in about a minute and if it's a bad one you go oh god they're not worth paying the money but then you get three within another three minutes sort of brilliant so it's the ideal spectator sport so speedway motorbikes you're in a slide pretty much the entire time. No, not really. It nope. look, might look like it, but yeah. You, know, nope. you slide around the corners, but you know, there's an art to... If you keep sliding, you're slow. The, the, the longer your wheels are in line with traction, that's how you go faster. So lots of times you, you turn very quickly and get everything in line, and then you're on, on the way. So give us an idea of what this sport is, because the motorbikes look very different from other motorbikes. Oh, yeah, they're completely different. There's just... It's just a frame and wheels, no no brakes, just a throttle and a clutch. Clutch to start and a throttle, that's it, nothing else. My biggest plus was that I enjoyed doing it, and uh, that's that's very important. Where where did that come from? Where did the love of the uh, sport come from? Well, I used to I used to hang around the pits at Christchurch when it first started there, and I used to help the boys to do it and. Yeah, I got involved with it and then I went to the training school. I had no money, so I'd push everybody and do all the running around for everybody for the day and then they'd give me eight laps at the end of it. And that's how I really started because I didn't have money for a bike or that. But um, Did it make you hungrier? Because I was reading about that. You were saying that you basically had to just do whatever you could do for everybody else just so you could get those laps. Yeah, but it's it's how big your want is, isn't it? Mm. You know, if you... If you want it enough, you'll you'll do it. You know that some people have everything given to them, and they they don't get to the top because they haven't been through the rough stuff to start with. You know. And you talked a lot about that 
mindset, that tough mindset that you got from an early age. Well, the key key when things go wrong, you still find a way through it. Yeah. You know, you start off badly, you fall out, have a tip or whatever happens, it doesn't finish you for the night. You've got the, you can dig up to, to win everything else, you know, and I just think, because everybody used to laugh because in Russia and Poland, it was all communist and everybody had the best bikes and it was all state sponsored. And how come these boys from Christchurch win so many world's championships? We used to say, oh, it's the water, you know, just <laughs> as a joke, because it's, I mean, so the Russians and all these people threw all the money at it and they, they just couldn't do it. And here's a little town like Christchurch, because all the people in Christchurch think if you ride a bike and go to England, you'd be world champion. It don't quite work like that. Cause, <laughs> and people have never seen England. You know, the, every world final's got between 80 and 95,000 people. It's a proper sport, you know. It's, and it was a pre-runner of rock and roll, really, because it was all young girls like there was around rock and roll when I went there. You know, it's, well, you did look a bit like a rock star. I didn't mean it that way, but you no, know, but I'm it, saying it, it was kind of because it was exciting, yeah. and you know, the, the, all the young girls went there, and the, you know how that when rock and roll started, they all kind of went that, and it's it, it was like that. It was just it was a show, but you know, that a show is one thing, getting up singing, but when you got to go out and win, it's a bit different. And you find out about yourself what makes you win or how you're going to be good one night or bad the other. And you find out about your body and what you can do and what you can't be to be at your best, you know. Do you think it gives you a competitive edge, that modesty? Because maybe you're striving for excellence, but you don't... I always was on the back foot that anybody could beat you. Yeah. You know, if they because it's you they put in their best that they can do and they beat you. Yeah. So there's no, no good blaming your bike or this is wrong or that's wrong. The bloke just produced it and he beat you. And, uh, and we also sp- spoke about sporting heroes. You know, yeah. well, sporting is, is not heroes. It's probably the wrong word. I, I think a hero is a bloke in a spitfire with a bloody bloke right. behind you in a, in a, in a, uh, a Luftwaffe pilot behind you trying yeah, to shoot you trying down to shoot you yeah down. and you're fighting for your country that's a hero i don't get the sporting hero but when you look at the number of world champions we've had in motorsport in general yourself included what is it why new zealand why why has new zealand produced so many great oh, motorsports champions? i don't think it's just motorsport i think generally it's that they're tough-minded they don't don't give in easy you know, you've got a lot of Americans, especially in our sport, they're, they're tremendous riders, but they, something goes wrong in their first race, they kind of quit. They don't quit, but they've lost their edge. I don't think that, I think that sparks the Kiwi up. You, you, you never beat, and you never beat in anything until you cross the finishing line. Right. You know? It's a, a little bit of an underdog mentality too. Like I was just reading about your upbringing, and you really had to fight for absolutely every single step yeah. along the way. There was nothing really handed to you, no, was there? but I think that's a general that, especially boxers, look at all the boxing champions, they all come from nothing. Yeah. Because you've got something, you're going to get a, get a hiding, get punched up, and you, you go home and your mum makes your meal and everything's okay. And when, you, when you've had it a bit tough, what is tough? You, I know you went through a tough time when you were 14, your mum and dad broke up, mm. right? Um, and that upbringing that you had, it, it was pretty tough then. With it was normal. 
was a bit harder than other people and I didn't have this and that, but I didn't need this and that. Yeah. You know, I, what I have and what I got now, and I still modest in what I buy or I don't want a bigger this or a better this, I, I'm quite easily pleased. <laughs> yeah. I love this story about how when you were going into, I think it was one of your first races and your mum helped you get the uh, get your kit together. And, and I understand there was pieces of carpet and all kinds of things. Oh, no, yeah. I made my own set of leathers on my mum's singer sewing machine. Broke many. <laughs> broke a few Broke needles. all the needles and that. And then the, she come the first night and I crashed after the race was over and, di and did my knee in because I didn't put enough carpet in, in the knee of it. Well, I never made a set of leathers before. So <laughs> then I learned another good lesson. But, you know, and she wasn't happy with me going to England, you know, at 17 years old, but... We bought her a watch at Christmas, and my friend told her that it was going to be good, but she she never come again and watched me. So is that right? Mm, so she's seventeen years old. In those days, the cheapest way was to go jump on a boat. Yeah, a boat and was, and yeah. and you end up. I think the boat went through Sydney, didn't it? And, yeah. and then it broke down for a couple yeah, of days. Yeah, but that's the way. That's the way it works. If you got money, and if you ain't got money, you got to walk. So and it, you know. You sold pretty much everything to get that fare to go over there, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I worked at the meatworks, and the bloke at the meatworks was really good. He realized what I was doing, and I'd get in at five o'clock in the morning and pack kidneys or whatever it took because I didn't have the money, and I needed the money to get, get there. So you so, had that real hunger. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to give it my best go, and I suppose that's all it was. And, you know, it's, it's part of you, isn't it? Whatever yeah. I do, I try my best and try not to hurt myself. And, you know, you, you're in a ridiculous way of making a living because it's dangerous. But the thing is to, to get through it in the other end and uh, be in one piece. You, you said you're still out riding your bike. Yeah, I ride my bike probably, if I can, if the weather's decent while I'm here, I can ride two days a week up in Saddleback and, and out at Silverwood Lake. Here you know, in California. Three or four hours up Rocky Hills because it's 6,000 feet. I'm good. Yeah. You know, my judgment's good. But I put a sign on the handlebars, danger, think, because at times you find yourself going far too fast because the bikes are so good. So w this trip that you're taking to England when you're 17 years old, mm -hmm. you're at sea all those you know weeks, and then you figured you were going to go race in a third division speedway championship yeah. round right mm -hmm. but then yeah. when you get there and you're just a kid when i got there all of a sudden you know i'm i'm in the first division which is way above my ability but you were stretched and when you won races you're winning races against the best riders in the world you say you're a kid and didn't know anything and all the rest of it but i mean I, I, that's that modesty coming through but there were people around you who identified something special about your skill you know i was making impression on some of the riders and that's the ones you've got to impress not the spectators yeah so you know i heard that and i just about fell over I thought, well that's, that's a bit ambitious and but i never thought it because you hear of people i woke up in the morning and I, I dreamed i wanted to be world champion from two years old well i kind of laugh <laughs> took me a few years to realize cool maybe i could all right, well, now you've had a bit of time to reflect. You're a pretty good rider. Oh, yeah. I was probably one of the best because I, I loved it, and most of them didn't love it. I think I had the way of enjoying doing it well, you know, that, 
And if you saw me at a meeting, you wouldn't want to talk to me because I was a miserable jerk. <laughs> you know, because you've got to concentrate. You get one chance, and if you make the wrong move, you can break your arm, leg, whatever. You know, you've got to be serious. And I was very lucky that I married the right girl. And, you know, she propped me up. I've just had a, a real lucky streak, I think. You know, I've got two brilliant kids and and the mother, Judy, bought the kids up when I get in at 2 o'clock that night and they'd have to go to school at 8, so she kept the kids quiet and so I could sleep because I was that, that night I was back down in Southampton or somewhere, you know, that it was just a constant. And that was it was all important that you, you stay focused on what you're doing. And it's hard to do it on long periods to keep doing it, but you, you couldn't really think, well, I'll take it easy now because it's not a thing that you can take easy because that's when you get hurt. Yeah. I think I every I think I become popular because every time I race I give my best and the people understood they paid their money they thought well he's not just going to cruise around the back of the field yeah but whatever he's doing he's going to give it his best and I think that's that did a lot for me. You you said about the people that turned up in the tens of thousands. Mm -hmm. You said a lot of them for a lot of them their lives were miserable and and when they turned up to the speedway, it gave them some escapism. And yeah. you felt a responsibility to put on a show. I look back at what I've had and I think I was really, really lucky. And I'm still alive and breathing. That's the most important. <laughs> the, the Wembley Stadium mm. was one place where this, one of the big venues, was, yeah. it the, was it the biggest one in England? Yeah, it was, it was the biggest, biggest and, stadium. And, and how many people would turn up to watch you guys race? Well, the, in, in the league matches, they, in the league matches when it was down a little bit, they got probably 40,000, 45,000 just for league matches, Wimbledon versus Wembley or Wembley versus Norwich. But in the World's Championship, they always got around about 85,000, 95,000. The first couple of uh, World's Championships after the, they, they were sold out. You've, you've had so many adventures on the track, but I think what's so incredible about your life story is the other challenge that you took on in your life going to Africa. Uh, and th that is, sounds as dangerous and as challenging as anything you ever did on the track. Oh, yeah. What, it was a different what, danger, wasn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, and more, I, I would say... Uh, you only uh, had rifles up against your head and things like that. It's, it's not quite the same as the first corner, is it? No. So how does a speedway champion end up deciding to go to the continent of Africa to take on a life adventure well, there? Well, it, it started with the Clogai gold mine in Wales. Yeah. That's where all the royal gold comes from. The, the, the crown for the queen is that, and the wedding rings were Clogai gold. And we, through another boy, an Aussie, he went down there, was, and it was, they had these mountains, and in the old days, they just cleared, it, cleared the inside of the mountain. It was just like hollow. And one of my friends went in and they found a load of gold there. And I, I bought into that. And we went on the stock market in, in England with, with that gold mine. And um, that's how I got into the mining. And yeah, we, we, it was valued at 40, I think at 43 million, what we had. And then we'd done all the papers to go on the London stock market. And then the whole stock market all over the world went upside down and that was it. In the, so the mid-80s, 87 or something. Yeah, we just had to wipe our hand. We'd done four years. Oh, we really going heartbreaking. To, nah, not really. 
it wasn't meant to be, was it? <laughs> so you march off and do your next one. You weren't exactly welcomed when when you got there. There was a civil war going on, and the soldiers stopped us. And some of them were only 17-year-old kids, and they had machine guns. And my Tony had a pair of khaki. This is your son. Yeah, he had khaki shorts with a with a hunting knife, just a knife. And of course, and then they say, well. Open the front of the car, but stand ten foot back. Well, you can't do the both things. You know they're nervous, and but they got the gun. And anyhow, we got arrested, and we just wouldn't play their game. They tell us to get in line, and we wouldn't get in line, and we just messed with them. And then they tossed us in jail for was in jail for two days. Many of them were going to die, so we were lucky because you but know you probably didn't know if you were going to die. No, uh, you got the feeling they that they a bit easier on you but you know they'd come in at night drugged up soldiers and kick you and all that kind of rubbish but you know you 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 saw through it and in the end we we got out of it but you know it was dangerous but that's that's what life was about you know <laughs> uh what uh what about now in terms of the riding that you're you're doing do you ever get out on the on the speedway bike, or is it always a, a, a motocross bike? What do you no, ride? No, most of it's motocross. But after speedway, I, I bought up a thing like the golden oldies, yeah, like, the, like they'd have in golf, yeah, the veterans too. And I, I owned all the bikes because boys go off and they can't afford the bikes, so I owned the bikes and I owned some a lot of the leathers, and the, it was very very popular because the blokes you never forget how to do it. It's like swimming. If you can yeah. swim, you can always swim. You don't know how you do it, but you do it. And they come back and they were very, very popular, those. And we did that for about three years. I think and I saw one where in 2015 that you did. And um, it was really heartfelt to see how many people who had been around when you were in your heyday racing, you know, who came out to oh, to we, see you. We, at we got more people at Coventry than the British Championship got, you know, because they were all big names and... And they all rode about the same. And the ones that were dodgy when they were young were still dodgy when they were older. <laughs> so if you didn't trust them when they were young, 100% don't trust them now. I love that you're still so motivated. Yeah, it's, it's motivating because I want to live the best I can up until when I fall off the perch. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't imagine you falling <laughs> off the perch in a hurry. Yeah. Oh, you I know, think you, you might be you just getting know. into your prime. There comes a period in life, you're confronted, is this the end? And you're kind of looking, you, every time you go out, you haven't done it for three or four days. I wonder if I can still do it. There's, and that, that's probably the age thing. You think, well, I wonder if I can do it. And yeah. it's, it's negative. Yeah. And it's the same with the, the, the Indy car. I've never been 200 mile an hour. And when you're getting 200 mile an hour, you got, your, your brain's screaming. You're mad. You get killed and everyone's, you know. And once you get rid of that, you get rid of that yelling it's, it's going to kill yourself and then you learn it's easy and it was the same with the Isle of Man when I, I went to Donington Training School to get used to being on the motorbike 130 mile an hour and then once again the brain comes in oh you know oh, this is dangerous once you get rid of it and then you, you learn it you're okay so what year did you go and race the Isle of Man how old were you then I was 81 I, I did I did Indianapolis in the May and then I went to the Manx Grand Prix in the Isle of Man that same year. Isle of Man, perhaps oh, that was, the, that, the most dangerous yeah, that, race the in the history of races. Yeah, this, I've, I've done a lot of laps around there on a road bike and I thought I knew it, but I was on a proper bike and the roads were closed 
and I, they give me money to write as well, which was ridiculous. I don't know how they let me loose on it. <laughs> and my my leg didn't bend enough to change gear properly. Ooh. And you never had practice on it. You never had... This is the first time on the road. And um, I've always wanted to do a 100-mile-an-hour lap, which is pretty quick around the island. But there's a lot of fast stuff. And these bikes will do 140 mile an hour. So if you get it on the straight, you, you can get your speed up. And um, I thought for the first time in my life I was going to die. I thought, Barry, if you ain't smart and your ego gets hold of you, you're going to die. And I thought about it and thought about it. And then I went off the start. They all start, I think, in twos. And I started and went through the gears, flat out through all the gears, to the top of Bray Hill. And Bray Hill is in between lampposts and, and curbs, and it's dangerous. But if you're any good, you'll go down there flat out. You'll go down fast. I got the top and went back 70 mile an hour. I went down 70 mile an hour, and then 70 mile an hour around Quarterbridge, and started getting a little bit quicker. And then I got out to, I think it was Union Mills, and I thought, bloody hell, the bike feels good now. And then I got into it. But I'd taken 100-mile-an-hour lap completely out of the window. Right. And it, it's dangerous because you, you can see a 100-mile-an-hour corner, but you've got to know what's around that corner. Is there a sharp left hand or right hand? I know it fairly well, and I thought I did, but I went there early one morning on the, in the car before I rode the bike, and I got up in the mountain, it was foggy. I didn't know where I was, so I didn't know it. In the old days, the blokes could come out of a corner and count four and turn right. They knew it so well. And you need three or four years to, to learn it because it's 37 miles of brick walls and you can't jump off the bike because you're going to die. If you make an inch mistake, you, can, you die. There's, there's kind of, it's, it's not me being dramatic. It is dangerous. It's real. And I just, you just got to look in the mirror and go, hey, smarten up. And I put a lot of effort into it. And I just kind of, and I had a really good ride in the end and where I could go quick. I'd always run up to somebody that was slower that would, I couldn't do that. But I had a great ride using my head. And, but it was unbelievable experience. It, you know, you can't buy that. You live to tell the tale. Well, you're, yeah, you're living on the knife edge. But, you know, you just, you got to realise what you're doing. And, you know, for once in my life, I listened to myself. Maybe you're getting smarter with edge. <laughs> I don't know about <laughs> that, but that, that, was, that was a crisis. Because I never, ever thought I was going to die on a motorbike. But I seriously thought, you know. I'd, you could see I, it. I had three or four days of thinking about it. And, you know, and I just think. But the experience being in the pits with all the pit, kids that's got, most of them got no money. And they're putting their lives on the line to do what they like. And, you know, to be involved with that was nice at my age. And they treated me lovely as well. And so they should. And I just kind of, you know, and I normally sleep before I do something. And when I was laying there, you go, and bikes going past under any mile and Hmm, you really? So, you know, I did smarten up. And it was, I had a really brilliant bike. What was the bike out of interest? It was a Karasaki of uh, Nick Jeffries, who got third in the Manx the year before. The bike was perfect. It was fast. But I never had an open road before because when, you, when you're up in the mountains or you, you're going around there in the, in the weekdays, you go around the corner, there's a truck in the way. 
Yeah. So you just had to always ride defensively. But when I when I got on there, it wasn't quite as easy what I thought. But I'm sure that a couple of years I'd be. It's it's the same with India. I think another fifty laps on in the Indy car, it qualified at 182 mile an hour. I'm sure I could have done 182 mile an hour lap. What are you going to do when you're 100? You got a race lined up? No. I just want to breathe. Yeah. Do what I want to do. Yeah. Play golf, read books. What what have you've had a an incredible life what advice do you give to people who are maybe not like you and wanting to get out and try new and different things i think what what we what we don't realize till late is that we're lucky to have a life and you just accept hey i've got a life but if you want to have the best out of your life you've got to put a little bit into it you know you just can't watch television all day and expect to get out you know, and do everything. But, you know, that it's just generally feeling good that you have a life and you can do what you like with your life and it's up to you. At the end of the interview, we do a couple of questions. If you were going to take a road trip, and I'm presuming it's going to be a very fast car for you, mate, um, any car you want, quite frankly, and you're going to take a road trip across America and you can take three people in the car with you from any time in history... To be your your traveling companions, who do you think you'd take with you? <laughs> well, that's a difficult one. Nobody want to go with me. <laughs> Why is that? Because <laughs> you wouldn't let them drive. <laughs> I haven't got the best reputation as a driver, but I, I'm very good going forward. I'm not so good backing up. <laughs> well, listen, you've done enough driving in your life. You don't have to take this bloody road trip. <laughs> There's, it's it's, it's too, not compulsory. No, there's too many cops, and I don't like American police. <laughs> well, so we'll stay we'll stay home. You could just ride your motorbike, bugger it. Yeah, no. Yeah, just call up your mates. How about your your perfect day? What's what to you is your your perfect day? Oh, your your perfect day would be surrounded by your mates. I would have thought. Yeah. Wherever they are, you yeah. could pull them all into one room. Listen, you're you're a bloody legend. I'm not a legend. And, well, I'm allowed to call you a legend. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I've 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 got your book. For people who haven't seen the book, this yeah, is the, the book. The, the FIM don't think I'm In, a legend. Incredible stories. Yeah. And um, thanks uh, thanks for coming in today and yeah. talking to me. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And I'd lo- I'd love to come out to your place and get some shots of you riding your bike. I don't ride on the road. No. Because it's dangerous. Yeah. It's interesting for you to say that. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To see more great interviews, go to philcogan.com and subscribe to Bucket with Phil Cogan wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider rating and reviewing us. And follow Bucket, that's Bucket with an I-T, on Instagram and Facebook. Also, follow me on Twitter, at Phil Cogan. See you soon.